Hey, Amarillo, I'm Jason Boyette, and you're listening to Hey, Amarillo, the interview podcast featuring some of the most interesting people and stories of Amarillo, Texas. This week's presenting sponsor is Panhandle Plains Historical Museum and Canyon. It's the largest history museum in Texas and one of the hidden gems of this area. If you're interested in local history, from the ranchers and pioneers who settled this area to the American Indians who lived here long before that, you can learn so much from the artifacts and collections at PPHM. Stay tuned until later to hear about two big upcoming events at the museum. Today's guest is David Ritchie. I think pastors make great podcast guests because thinking and talking and investing in the community are all part of their job descriptions. And that's why I interviewed Anthony Harris back in November of 2017 and Manny De Los Santos in July of 2018. Pastor Harris serves the North Heights neighborhood. Pastor De Los Santos serves the Barrio neighborhood. So this week, I thought I'd head to the west side of town to check in with another local pastor, David Ritchie of Redeemer Christian Church. A couple things I really appreciate about David. First, he has a really amazing beard, for what that's worth. Second, he's a fifth-generation West Texan who felt called to plant a community-focused church in Amarillo. But in 2011, he had an opportunity to actually replant a church. That church would become Redeemer within an already existing, struggling church location. And that's, that's not a story you hear very often in the church world. David is really thoughtful. He's really committed to Amarillo's people, not just within his congregation, but far beyond it. And I appreciate that. So here's David Ritchie. David Ritchie, welcome to the Hey Amarillo podcast. Thanks for being here today. Jason, I'm honored to be here. Well, I'm, I'm honored to talk to you. Um, I, I know that at, at some point we'll get to where we're talking about uh, your church and those different things, but uh, as with every guest, I like to start by asking why you're here in the first place. So tell me how you ended up in Amarillo. My roots go uniquely deep into West Texas. On one side of my family, my family's been here for six generations. In okay. fact, I have a great, great grandfather named Ernest Asbury Upfold who was the fourth ever Randall County Sheriff. That's a great name, by the way. It's a wonderful name, yes. And his picture hangs in the Randall County Sheriff's Office right now. It's a big, giant handlebar mustache sitting in front of a huge wooden radio and holding just a huge tobacco pipe. Okay. And he is uh, a part of our family. And so um, we've been here for a while. Uh, my mom and dad were both born in Amarillo, Texas. My mom was a Tascosa rebel. My dad was an Amarillo High Sandy, so it was Starcross lovers. And uh, they brought me and my sister into the world, and I've been here ever since. Uh, it's my home, and I love it. Was there ever a point, you know, maybe when you were in high school or growing up or thinking about college when you thought, I love it here, it's where my family is, but I've got to get out of here and, and try something new. Certainly, I, and I think that's a very common thought for most kids that grow up here. Uh, we oftentimes think that the grass is greener on the other side, and in most cases that's literally true when mm-hmm. you're talking about growing well, yeah. up in West Texas. But I, I thought I was going to go somewhere else. Um, I, I thought I was going to go to University of Texas or University of Dallas. I was accepted into both of those schools, and, and circumstances and providence just allowed me to stay here. I ended up going to school at Amarillo College and graduating from West Texas A&M, and I fell in love with this city actually through doing ministry. I just I felt like I understood the city. I saw its value. I saw its beauty, and I, I wanted to be able to even be a part of cultivating love for this place. Was that something you recognized as a young person, you know, a, a teenager, or something that, that that maybe maturity kind of 
drove you into? I mean, is, is that, we, we don't think very often about where we live unless it's like reasons we don't want to live there anymore, you know, especially when you're 13, 14, 15. Uh, do, do, I mean, do you remember like having an opinion about Amarillo as a kid or? Certainly. I, I remember having conversations with friends, um, constantly thinking about all these cool places that we could move to and the cool things that we could be able to go out and do. We were always celebrating the culture of other cities and other places. And I'd even traveled abroad some. I was able to go to Europe. I was able to do some, um, just study abroad tours and um, take some classes overseas. And that was a blast. And coming back here, you know, after you've seen, you know, Notre Dame and London and all all these beautiful things, um, you can kind of be down on Amarillo Mm -hmm. and down on our culture. But it was really through doing ministry in this place that I began to honestly pray that God would give me a love for this city um, because there was a time where I felt like I didn't love the city. Mm-hmm. And just over praying that I, I would be able to have a heart for this place, I felt like that was authored within me. Uh, I, I think that part of the Christian tradition really does call Christians to love the city in which they live. Um, and in some ways, we are to believe that not only do we live here by happenstance, but by providence, by purpose, that we have been sent in some way to be able to live here. And so I think that part of uh, of my mission, part of my calling, is to be able to um, help people to to love the city of Amarillo and to be able to uh, give evidence and witness to the kingdom of God in, in simple and small ways, but in, in a way that is meaningful. I, I want to talk a little bit about that, and, and we may be jumping ahead some, but uh, you know, you saying that, and I'm, I'm thinking in the mindset of listeners. Um, many of whom maybe have had a bad experience with the church, or they come from a tradition that's a little more adversarial, you know, with certain businesses in town or with leadership or government that that feels like they need to go in and like fix things or bring people over, you know, to the church side. And and you're talking from a much more positive, let's work together, let's uplift the city sort of perspective. Um, so so tell me a little bit more about what you think that means for members of your church, of your community, to love the city, to be involved, and and to not be in an adversarial position, but in a a position of guidance and help. A lot of my my views that have formed my ministry philosophy have emerged from my story. And I grew up in the church, and I grew up in a family of Christians, but I didn't convert until a little bit later in life. And for some time, in fact, I rejected what I thought I understood to be Christianity. Um, Christianity and my experiences of it were something that were really equated with this very politicized um, version of Christianity. It was a it was a very culturally excluded version of Christianity, and uh, I didn't like it. Um, it was something that actually turned me off, and I've. I've always been a little bit more of a skeptical bent, and so I had deep questions that at the time weren't being answered well. Mm-hmm. And so it wasn't until a little bit later in life where I began thinking deeply, and I began um, going to university and uh, reading literature and reading philosophy and and just learning what it meant to be able to really engage a text for the first time and to be able to read it um, with new eyes, with fresh eyes. And I found myself coming back to the Bible. And, and reading it not as some West Texas religion, but something that was really reaching from centuries ago, from cultures ago, from many languages um, that, that bridge the world of the Old and New Testament to our world right now. And I was able to see it as something that was radically different than I thought it was. And I came to the belief that 
if this really is true, if I, if I believe that this is true, this is something that I want to give my life to, um, that this, this notion of the kingdom of God and, and God being able to actually enter into the pain of human history and being able to, to redeem it and to restore it and to conquer even the power of death, to extend this invitation of forgiving your enemies and to be forgiven, that, that was something that was really beautiful to me. That, that's a story that I could form my life around. Mm. And I began to be very passionate about leading people into that. Uh, I never thought I would be a preacher. In fact, if you had met me when I was 18 years old, you would not think I would be a preacher. I was terrified of the thought of public speaking. And to, to be a pastor was something that was so not on my radar um, because I thought I would never be a Christian, much less a pastor. Mm-hmm. But once I began to really understand what the gospel was and what it calls us to, I felt like that not only did I want to declare the gospel of Jesus Christ, but to be able to lead people in actually displaying that gospel as well with their lives. And I think sometimes there is a disconnect between that. Yeah. Sometimes we're willing to talk about theology in the church world, but we're unwilling to allow it to really affect anything else about how we live or how we relate to others or how we relate with our neighbors. And so I view it as as a part of my call um, to be able to, to see our church, be able to be a blessing to the families that are here, of course. We we love that. We love our our, our members, um, our families, the people that, that come and worship here. But we want to be more than just um, a receptacle of grace. Um, we want to be those that give that grace away. Uh, we want to be a blessing to our city. And we want to mobilize people to see their vocation, to see their life in terms of, of a difference that they can make for the glory of Jesus and for the good of this world, um, to be able to to love our neighbors in a way that makes a difference. What does that look like on a week-to-week basis? I mean, to, to take that big idea, you know, which is a great idea, but to to actually live that out person to person within a community. Yeah, it's being faithful in the small things, um, stewarding moment by moment, opportunity by opportunity. And so sometimes that looks like teaching the Bible and going to a place that wants an encouraging word. Sometimes that looks like looking into a, a member that has a certain gifting or a certain calling and, and trying to be able to help frame their understanding of of how they might leverage this gift that God has given them to be a blessing to the world. And and so we have extraordinary people that are a part of this church community. And I feel very, very humbled that I get to know them and to worship with them and, and hopefully be a source of encouragement and sometimes connect them to one another so that they can be a blessing to the city. One person that's been mentioned on your program several times, uh, much to my delight, has been Dr. Ryan Pennington, uh, the Refugee Language Project. Who has an office here at your church. He does, yeah. we, In some ways, uh, Redeemer got to be the incubator for Refugee Language Project. Um, it's something that we always desired not to be a Redeemer thing, but an Amarillo thing. Mm-hmm. And there are, I mean, I think up to 20 churches and, and many people that don't go to a church that are a part of that project that's doing some extraordinary work in the city. And that's that's one um, one of the more notable ways that we're able to be able to do that. But there, there's all kinds of other ways that we're able to do that too. We have a lot of people that are at this church for whatever reason that are speech therapists and occupational therapists. We have a lot of families here that have special needs children. And so we created a program called Wonderfully Made that, that specifically serves families with special needs children um, to be a support to the families, uh, the moms and dads, as well as to their children and to the siblings. And that's just us 
stewarding what's been brought to us, the gifts that we've been given, and seeing how can this truth that we sincerely believe about Jesus Christ, his life, death, and resurrection, if that is true, how do we allow our lives to be molded around that reality? I want to jump back to when you were in college and and sort of figuring out your path. I mean, did you begin to think that the church was a direction while you were studying at that point? I mean, it was, was it becoming clear then, or was it not until after you got out? Well, when I began college, I thought I was going to go down the route of being a pre-med major and going on to medical school, becoming a medical doctor. That was something that, I mean, pretty much all of high school, that's the path that I thought I would take. Mm-hmm. And I kept on taking biology and chemistry courses, and I was minoring in English literature on the side. And I kept on being drawn to literature. Yeah, I, I felt like I loved science, and I was able to um, move in that arena. But the things that really drew my heart were found in stories. The things I cared about the most, goodness and truth and beauty, those things were best not studied under a microscope, but in the terms of a narrative, through poetry, through language, through art. And so I kind of made a left turn and thought I was going to go down that, that field, and I thought I was going to maybe, maybe I could teach one day. Maybe I could teach high school English or maybe go on and get a doctorate and maybe teach at the collegiate level. And it was in that process where I began to rediscover the Bible, and I began to rediscover the gospel. And I was so drawn to stories that I felt like were pervasive across different cultures. And, and in many ways, I began to see the gospel as this unique thing that really is kind of like this meta-narrative that reaches across all these different stories. Um, you, you see in Jesus Christ this, the story of this, this hero that goes into death and comes out of it again and conquers it. it and some version of that story is told over and over and over again in every story that we tell ourselves. Right. The, the ones that really stick. Well, that, the hero's journey. I mean, Joseph Campbell has that, identified that as, as one of the central stories of all literature. That's right. He is the hero with a thousand faces. He is the once and future king, the prince that was promised. It's, it's just so on top of everything that we, we believe. It's etched into the human heart. And I began to become increasingly convinced that this story actually entered into human history in the person and the work of Jesus Christ. And as I sincerely began to believe that, it just it changed my life. Um, I began to, to think, if this is true, this is something I really do want to give my life to. Mm-hmm. This is something that I would like to be a part of. Uh, what, whatever God's doing in the work, I would like to be a part of it. And so initially, I, I came on staff at a local church just to be able to be around Christians. I thought I was maybe just going to take a little bit of a break and I would get back to the plan of going and becoming a, you know, a literature PhD of some sort. Was this after graduating from college? No, or I was, was this actually, this was during, during college. During it, okay. This was during college. And um, even for a period of time, I actually stopped taking courses and then went back and completed my degree. This interesting thing happens when you start being involved in a church. Um, for me, it started as a musician. I played bass guitar, um, and then that led to other opportunities. Uh, you, you just you start getting exposed to different opportunities that give you opportunity to evidence different things that you might not have known were inside of you. And so before I knew it, I, I found myself in a position where I was leading a college ministry at 24 years old and um, preaching and teaching and counseling and and leading volunteers. And I began to kind of enter into this mentality of, I think this might be what I want to do with my life. Hmm. I I get a lot of joy in this. And 
my wife and married her, um, we just felt a call towards ministry on our life, and we began to be convinced that that would be something that we would do for the rest of our lives. Um, I began to notice that there was kind of a, a vision for a church growing in my heart. Um, I, I wanted to be a part of a church that treasured Scripture and was willing to go deep mm-hmm. into the things of Christian theology and biblical studies. All of those things, I, I felt like I wanted to be able to be a part of a ministry that was willing to engage those hard questions. Yeah, yeah. That was unafraid of that, um, that we were unafraid to swim in the deep end of the pool. But I also wanted to be a part of a church that valued the idea of what we call Christian mission, of being involved in, in the world and being able to be faithful um, in displaying the gospel message, not just through words, but through deeds. And a lot of times that can be uh, mutually exclusive in churches where you really value theology in the Bible or you really value um, doing things and, and expressing that in tangible ways. And I, I fundamentally believe that you can do both. You can be deep and, and wide at yeah, the same time. Absolutely. And that that in some ways that depth actually motivates that action. Yeah. It motivates the ability to love. And, and and I see that as you know the great commandments, right? That you should love God with all your heart, but you should also love your neighbor as yourself. And they're not competing claims. Those are not competing commandments, but actually the love of God is in some ways meant to fuel that love for our neighbor. Tell me about starting Redeemer as a church. A, a lot of people encounter a church after it's you know already built or ready or meeting. You know, it's 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 sort of developed. You know, when you're in a position of kind of starting one from scratch, what did that look like in your case? So I was coming out of a period where I was doing primarily college ministry and just some things were coming together in our life where we felt like this is time for us to be able to step out in faith and to be able to, at the time, plant a new church. That was our game plan. We were going to plant a brand new church and go on that journey. And some unexpected things happened. As I was in the middle of that journey, um, one of the few people that I told I was going to do that um, to was uh, this guy named John Kohler. He's a professor over at Emerald College. He teaches New Testament Greek. He taught me New Testament Greek, which not a lot of people know that you can take Koine Greek at Emerald College, right, but you right. can. And I told him about what I was going to do, and he said, that's great that you want to plant a new church, and I love your vision. I, I think that this is going to be something that will serve a lot of people. I think this is going to reach people that are maybe not being reached right now. But instead of planting a new church, would you ever consider replanting a church that is dying, a church that needs a lot of help? And my initial reaction to that was no. Um, I know enough about church to know that if something's dying, um, that's that's typically a messy situation that you want to stay very far away from. And um, I was leaving a good job to, to go out on a limb for something that was just this vision in my heart. And so I didn't want to sacrifice that that vision to potentially get into involved into a complicated situation that would explode in my face. Right. Um, but as I began to engage that process of, of stepping out, there was this church named West Amarillo Christian Church that reached out to me. Um, it was a church that John Kohler knew about. It was a church that used to support his ministry and some of the stuff that he's doing over at Amarillo College. And they had fallen on hard times, um, but it was actually one of the most historically rooted churches in Amarillo. It was planted initially in 1927. Calvin Coolidge was president. Wow. <laughs> it was a church that had as one of its founding members Mary E. Bivens. Okay. And so a, a great um, family in the Amarillo area that's done so much. 
And they went through a history where they were a growing, thriving church. Um, they were initially planted in the Nat Ballroom, of all places. Wow. And they built a building in uh, the San Jacinto neighborhood, which, believe it or not, at that period of time, was considered West Amarillo. Right, right. And the, the church um, really did thrive for a period of time. They had a great Bible study curriculum, and they, they saw all kinds of people coming in and studying the Bible with them. And they even planted new churches. Um, they planted Washington Avenue Christian Church, okay. which exists today. They planted Paramount Terrace Christian Church, right. which is now Hillside. And seems to be doing well. I think they're doing pretty well, <laughs> yeah. And it's uh, it just had this long legacy of, of doing great things. But it entered into a period of decline. It entered into a period where... There were divisions and unfortunate things happening at the church that that led it to a place to where it wasn't doing very well. In the middle of all that, they they thought they would solve all their problems by moving further west into right. the new area of town, and they built it, but they did not come. Right. And the church was in a place of, of turmoil. The church was in a place of decline, but there was a faithful remnant that was left um, at this church with very, very humble people that were really open to a radical new direction. And, and so... Uh, when I first talked to them and they they wanted to ask me about what I was doing with this new church plant, I told them very clearly, I, I have a very clear vision for what I want to do. I want to be a church that's faithful in declaring the gospel. I want to be a church that's faithful in displaying the gospel. And this is going to cause us to do things very, very differently. But if you're willing to do this, um, maybe we could come together and, and be able to see the power of the gospel actually bring life out of death yet again, um, because uh, I do believe that God still is in the business of resurrection. Mm-hmm. And so they, to my astonishment, said, let's do this. Um, let's let's go for it. And I was 27 years old, okay, thinking that I was going to plant a church. I was expecting the church to be kind of a Lord of the Flies church, um, a bunch of young people that were just, because I mean, who else in the world was going to follow me? Right. And... All of a sudden, um, we have this this group of people, of, of faithful older people that are willing to come together with us and become this new thing. And that new thing is Redeemer Christian. How Church. many people were there at the at the beginning or, or that period of transition? Like the who first, did you who did you inherit? You know, as, yeah. as you came. So um, I uh, the first service I went to had between thirty and forty people. Okay, and they had a building that was they didn't have any debt on it, um, but they were in the red. And so when they offered the job, um, it was not a paying job. It was something that um, we were just hoping that the Lord would be able to do something so great that um, one day that there would be provision for it to where I could really do this full time and, and give my all to it. My wife and I were pregnant with our first son. It was, it was a lot of transition happening yeah, at that, that yeah. time in life, and everything about the church needed to be restored. Uh, the first time I asked to be able to see a budget they had to turn on an old DOS-based computer and print off an accordion of, of spreadsheets and uh, budgets. And it was I, I knew at that moment that every single thing is going to have to be rebuilt from the ground up. And so I, I have a church planner friend that compared it to driving a bus down a highway and you know going over 70 miles an hour and trying to change the engine out. Yeah, yeah. And that's what it felt like. I mean, it was every single day. Um, I, I was just praying that the Lord would lead me and guide me to re- make the right decision because I felt like any wrong move could blow the whole thing up triumphantly. And uh, it was kind of like, you know, do I cut the red wire first or the blue wire first? <laughs> um, because if I cut the wrong one, it's going to be bad news. And by the grace of God, we, we just saw something happen here um, where there was tremendous growth, slow but steady. And 
from the very, very beginning, we got to see people's lives start being changed. And it really is a miracle. It's nothing shy of a miracle. A church replant that works mm-hmm. is uh, nothing shy of a work of God. I mean, I think we we did everything we could do to have as much strategy and um, forward thinking and, and careful thought that we could um, give to this project. Um, but at the end of the day, we just feel very, very blessed that we were able to be a part of something that really was a, a story of redemption. And I, I love that the origin story is not one of deciding that Amarillo needs a new church and yeah. and starting something from scratch because the the thing that we hear all the time is that you know you can find a church on every corner a church in a bank or maybe a convenience store you know and and so a lot of church planners might come in here and say well you know there's all these different churches but I'm going to do one that's different and that meets some need that you know 500 other churches are not meeting when really there are a lot of great churches that maybe just lack the resources or lack the leadership or lack the vision, you know, to maybe find that revitalization. And so instead of starting from scratch, like you said, it's a replanting or even a rebranding or a a change in leadership to get them out of that hole that they were in. Um, And I think just in terms of a a metaphor, you know, with with resurrection and, and Christianity, that's a much more interesting story than maybe just coming in and saying, ah, oh, what this church needs is me as a pastor and my vision, and, and I'll, I'll give the city this and start something from scratch. Exactly. I, I think that we are a different church than the one I was expecting in early 2011 when I began this process, but we are a better church than I was ever expecting. I, I love the fact that we were almost instantaneously a much more multi-generational church hmm. than we would have been had I been a church plant. and, and I felt Because you're bringing youthful energy into a church that also had some older, faithful people that wanted to be part of this new this new process. Absolutely. I mean, people that were um, in their 80s and 90s, I inherited two Velmas and two Clydes and a Melvin, and I love them with all of my heart. I'm their pastor. And again, that wasn't what I was expecting, that we are a better church because of that. And I feel like it made a difference to the community actually see a historic church be revitalized and to be reinvigorated with new life to be able to re-engage the city yet again. Um, I I feel like even those in the church community were coming alongside of us and and celebrating that um, this was something that we were able to be able to be a part of. And I I appreciate what you say there because our intent was never to be the end-all, be-all of Amarillo Church, that everybody else is doing it wrong and now we're going to come in and do it right. Mm -hmm. I, I think that's a very prideful and arrogant way to approach doing ministry. And I felt the best way I could explain it is I felt like there was an aspect of the body of Christ that needed to be brought online. There was an expression of it to where we had a role to play within the larger body of Christ. And and I really do feel like there is a a connectivity that we have with other local churches in the city. I, I love other churches. I'm very good friends with many other senior pastors in the city and I, I celebrate the fact that we can collaborate together and work together for the good of our city because we're not in competition with one another. Uh, we're in competition with addiction and things that are ruining marriages and things that are ruining families, things that are um, tearing up people's souls. Um, that's what we're in competition with. It's it's not with one another. I want to talk about that connectivity because I, I know that Redeemer is involved 
with other churches like St. John and Manny de los Santos and Power Church and, and Paramount Baptist and, and having like unity services and bringing different church communities together across racial boundaries, across ethnic boundaries, across socioeconomic boundaries. Um, and that, that that's not something necessarily in Amarillo that happens organically. It's something you have to be real intentional about. Um, so tell me a little bit about that emphasis and, and why it's important you know, to you as a pastor and, and to your church community. Well, it's been a great encouragement to me in the last few years of seeing more pastors coming together and forming genuine friendship. And, and that's so important because before we started doing services, before we started doing projects together, we shared a lot of meals together. We prayed together. And in those moments, you build a lot of trust. And from that genuine trust and friendship, you're able to launch out and do some extraordinary things. And particularly one of the things you're referring to is the One in Christ services that we've had the privilege of being a part of came from us discussing over lunch just a concern, a pastoral concern that we had in our nation and in our city of, of so much polarization, so much division, um, so much racism that is being brought to the forefront of, of thought in society. And we talked about how we really do believe the gospel is the answer to this, that, that in Jesus Christ you, you have this gospel that is able to reach across cultures that should be at war with one another and enemies with one another that can, it can affect this reconciliation. And again, we believe that that's something that should not just be said out loud and believed in and mentally subscribed to, but that's something that should actually be displayed. We should actually give evidence to that with the way that we live, with the way that we worship. And so we came up with this idea of, why don't we do these joint worship services um, where we're willing to actually step into one another's houses of worship. We lead our congregations over there, and we worship together, and we sit under the preaching of God's Word, specifically geared towards the application of the gospel to this specific issue, mm -hmm. what it means to be one in Christ. And it's been extraordinary. It's It's been Fascinating to me how much attention it's gotten from local media and how even people outside of those four churches or outside even Christian faith have celebrated as this is something that gives us hope. Because I guarantee you the people that are gathering in that room, they're not necessarily going to vote the same. They're right. not exactly going to think the same. Um, they live in different quadrants of the city. But what hope there is that we can call one another neighbor, that we can call one another a fellow brother and sister in Christ. That, that There's a power to that. And in fact, and you go all the way back to the, the New Testament in the book of Acts, there, there's a church called Antioch, and it's the first time that Jews and Gentiles are worshiping together. And the passage says, and that's, that's when they started to be called Christians, mm -hmm. those that are like Christ, those that are little Christs. And, and I love that. Um, and that's something that uh, I hope that that we can get the attention of the city and that we can get attention even beyond that um, of saying may, maybe there's something to this um, that we can come together, we can love one another sincerely um, because of God's love for us. And I think I think you're right that, you know, it, it has to be something, at least in that setting, that happens strategically. You know, I, I think if left to our own devices, and this has been true of humanity for thousands of years, of Christianity, you, even for its 2,000 years, that communities kind of get isolated and keep to themselves, focus on themselves, and don't always reach out. I mean, even in, in talking about, let's say, Power Church, which has a more Pentecostal bent, mm -hmm. and Redeemer, which is, 
you know, uh, denominationally very different from that. Southern Baptist at Paramount Baptist. Mm-hmm. I mean, those there's not even a lot of lines crossed among de- different denominations in Amarillo. And so to kind of force a membership, you know, to enter each other's worlds like that, I, I think has a lot of different levels of connection that can happen from that. People have to be pushed that way, I think. They do. And I grew up in Amarillo. I grew up in Southwest Amarillo. And it wasn't until I was in my late teens that I think I really explored outside of Southwest Amarillo. Right. And I love the fact that, you know, my little boys have been able to go over to St. John's and worship there on a Sunday and be able to experience that place in the North Heights. And, you know, uh, recently we were able to have one of these services in the barrio with Power Church and to be able to bring people from our congregation to experience those places really is bridging gaps in our city. It's it's causing people to inhabit a place that's outside of their normal way of life, that's outside of their comfort zone. And and again, I think this all goes to a practical way of how that, that love for God is fueling us and leading us to a greater love for our neighbor. With that emphasis on, you know, serving the community and, and loving your neighbor from your perspective as a pastor, and granted you're a pastor that's working in the southwest side of Amarillo, or that's based in the southwest side of Amarillo, but, you know, like you said, you're you're trying to get your community involved throughout the city. What, what do you look at in terms of the biggest needs that Amarillo has, that Amarillo's people have? You know, we've spoken a lot to different guests on, you know, what are some of the economic needs? What are the, some of the needs facing us, geographically speaking, um, in the entrepreneurial world, you know? But, but what do you see as some of the needs here? One thing that I see and that I'm mindful every week, whenever I, I step into the pulpit and I'm looking out onto a room, I'm mindful that there are people there that are suffering deeply. In, in, in a church like ours, I know that there's a high likelihood that, that that moment, that Sunday, might be the worst week of someone's life. Because life entails a lot of suffering. Marriages fail. Kids become estranged from their their families. Um, You get news of a loved one that has suddenly passed away. And there's grief in this world. And I think that that suffering, regardless of how it looks for different types of people, is pretty common. It's actually one of the things that unites us. And so I think that part of ministry is, is to simply be able to be available to listen, to hear people where they are. And we're going to have different communities and um, different churches that do ministry in different communities. And so I remember the first time um, that I heard Manny Del Santos preach, and it was obvious that he he's preaching to a type of community that he's dealing with every single week. And the struggles that they encounter are different than some of the struggles that people at Redeemer encounter. Right. And I think it's really just being able to be tuned into those stories and, and applying the truth and the comfort that they need. And, and the big idea of, of being able to do this as a Christian community is we're called to bear one another's burdens, that we don't have to do this alone. Sometimes as independently-minded West Texans, we think we do have to do it alone. Yeah, uh, we, that's kind of baked into the the mindset here exactly. in a lot of ways. Uh, we, you know, we've come up with this phrase of pulling yourself up by your own bootstraps. That's physically impossible. <laughs> you can't do that. Um, uh, gravity won't let you. We do need one another. And I, I think creating an environment of safety, an environment of trust where your your pain can be heard is something that 
is a crucial thing in doing ministry. And that's how needs are met because sometimes if you don't have that, those those needs will ever never be brought to the t- surface. They'll never be said. And so you, you work in a church to try to be able to create um, an environment where you can be honest enough to say, we're struggling in our marriage right now and we need help. Or we lost a job and our business is not doing really good right now and we can't afford this month's rent. Or my, my son um, just got arrested and is going to prison. And the, the situations are so different. Right. But the call to love in the midst of that is always the same. And, and you have to be able to create an environment of, of safety and trust. There's a, a pastor out of Nashville named Raymond Ortland, and he has this, this wonderful phrase. He says, safety plus gospel plus time equals transformation. That if you can create this environment where people really do feel safe, that that's an environment where they can have the truth of the gospel minister to them. And over a period of time, that that causes transformation in people's lives. And I really do believe that to be true. As I mentioned earlier, this episode is presented by Panhandle Plains Historical Museum in Canyon, Texas. It's the largest history museum in the state. And it's located on the campus of West Texas A&M University. The museum is open year-round, Tuesday through Saturday. It's a nonprofit, which means it's primarily funded by membership, donations, and visitor fees. So if you haven't checked it out in a while, definitely go do that this fall. One of the ways PPHM continues to fund its work is through special events. And one of those special events, actually two of those events, are coming up in just a couple of weeks. October is Archaeology Month, and the museum is celebrating that with Dino Day on Saturday, October 12th. I would have loved this thing when I was a kid. This is a fantastic afternoon event for dinosaur-loving kids, which I was one. Admission is $5 a person for ages four and up. And then on Tuesday, October 22nd, Panhandle Plains is offering an event called Through My Eyes. That evening, board members from the Amarillo Hispanic Chamber of Commerce and the Hispanic community will share their history and stories about the Panhandle Plains in unique tours that combines Spanish and English there in the museum. And this is during the week of Dia de los Muertos celebrations at the museum. PPHM Through My Eyes is a free event. I just think it's going to be amazing. Learn more about both of these opportunities at panhandleplains.org. Okay, I'm back with David Ritchie of Redeemer Christian Church. David, this is the part of the show I call Eight Straight. You know the drill. I'm going to ask you eight straight questions. As my guest, you can answer in as much detail as you want to. Um, no sermons or anything, but uh, I'll give you some leeway. And and the first one, I I haven't asked this of anyone before, but I just thought this is a question I'd like to ask you, and I, I want to see what your answer is. So who is your favorite historical religious figure? And I want to take Jesus off the table. Okay, that's so... Fair. All right. That's fair. I think that's a good one. I love the question, and I have two thoughts. The first of which is Augustine of Hippo. Okay. North African bishop, this brilliant mind. I mean, one of the most important thinkers Definitely. of all of human history that has influenced so much. But I love his story. I love that he grew up, his mom was a Christian, and he that didn't really work for him. And so he just explored all these different philosophies and ends up becoming essentially an equivalent of a professor or essentially a, a teacher of rhetoric. He goes up to northern Italy and starts hearing some uh, really interesting sermons from a guy named Ambrose and 
gets curious about the Bible, and um, he ends up reading the book of Romans, and he's converted and gives all of his life um, to doing that. He thinks he's going to be this monk that goes off into the mountains and writes all of these brilliant books, but he ends up becoming a pastor. He goes back to northern Africa, and he pastors a church there, and out of that pastoral ministry writes some of the most brilliant ideas. But the thing that I love about Augustine that I think is such a, a fresh take on Christianity and how we view the world today is he was a theologian of the heart. He understood the human heart. He he would have disagreed with the Enlightenment thinkers that mm-hmm. essentially think that we are what we think. Augustine would say we are what we love. He understood Christianity not as this joyless moralism where we're just constantly trying hard to not sin, but rather an invitation to a higher love in God that um, that our hearts are restless until we find its rest in Him. And that Which is one of his classic quotes. You right, may have seen on, it on a calendar somewhere. On the very first page of his confessions. And and I think that it's a beautiful way to look at the Christian gospel as a call to this, this higher love and rightly ordered desire. Um, the second one is William Wilberforce. Okay. I love Wilberforce because this is a man, he's an English evangelical. He lived in the 1800s. And he led the abolition movement in the nation of England. In fact, he gave his whole life to it. He radically converted at a later age, and he wrote a book. I'm going to have to reference this. um, A practical view of the prevailing religious system of professed Christians in the higher and middle classes of this country contrasted with real Christianity. Professed Christians versus (laughs) real Christians, yeah. Exactly. And what this man was able to do was phenomenal. He, He initially thought he because of his conversion, needed to be going into the clergy and into the ministry. And he had a pastor named John Newton, who wrote the hymn Amazing Grace, who said, no, you're gifted for politics. God put this in you. Use this gifting to affect great things in this world. And he gave the totality of his life to the abolition of slavery. And he was able to do that without leading the nation into a civil war. Mm -hmm. He was able to do that by using the gospel of Jesus Christ to provoke the conscience of a nation, of an entire culture, to be able to see what we're viewing as property are actually people made in the image and likeness of God. And and this was decades before the United States went through yes. Civil War and all of the, the drama in the 19th century. I mean, he was, he was not contemporary of Abe Lincoln and those guys. Yes, and he, he was before that. And, and that, to me, is just an extraordinary life, and it's an extraordinary example of, of what Christians can do um, when they're motivated by the gospel to be able to connect that not just to their Sunday morning experience but to their everyday life. Okay. Those are good answers. I, I, I'll sign off on those. When was the last time you visited Cadillac Ranch? We went to the Cadillac Ranch this summer. Did you really? Um, we have three little boys. My wife, Kate, and I have uh, three little boys ages seven, five, and three at this recording. And we went out there, and they don't call it the Cadillac Ranch. They call it a Decepticon graveyard. Okay. They're very much into Transformer robots and uh, rescue bots. They, they watch that on TV all the time. And so in their imagination, that's where the bad guys are buried. That and seems legit, though. That's, it, that's a good way to view perfect. it. I, I, I love the Cadillac Ranch. I love that you can go out there and at any moment potentially see people from all across the nation, all across the world. Yeah. Uh, kind of in this, this crazy environment where you can see into the distance as, as far as the eye can see. I love it. What does this area have too much of? I think that we might be at peak vape store <laughs> right now. That's, that's not an, Every, an answer I've had before, but that's a, that's a really good answer. <laughs> just when I think we've had enough, there's another one that opens up. But the serious answer to that question is 
I think that there is way too much of a preoccupation with the national scene mm-hmm. at the opportunity cost of looking at the local. Okay. Explain that a little bit. So we're saturated in media. Cable news is a, is a thing. That's a, it's a force to be reckoned with, and so is social media. And I think it's really important to be able to understand that a lot of these institutions, they're not trying to create a well-informed citizenry as much as they are trying to get views. They're trying to get clicks. And they use primarily fear and rage mm-hmm. to sell that. And that a lot of times takes our attention to these huge matters that are they are not unimportant, but they're nothing that we're connected to. They're very seldom something that we can actively do something about. Right. And while our attention is there, we might be neglecting our neighbor that's right next to us. We might be neglecting an opportunity that we have to be able to make a difference in our own city. And I think that's something that if we purposely push back against that that gravitational force into the outrage and the hysteria that we can we can get into online, that we have the opportunity to to make a better city. Okay. I like that answer too. What does this area not have enough of? Neighborliness. Okay. Okay. That sounds very Mr. Rogers of me, and that's intentional. God bless Mr. Rogers. We yeah. we could all do better to listening to him. We could really use a Mr. Rogers. Yeah, I, I <laughs> right now. agree. When Amarillo was founded, you know, we were a pioneer town. We we're out in the wilderness. Um, we needed to be able to do life together, and so we needed to support one another. That is something that's a value of the city. It's something that's special about the city, and I think it's something that we need to treasure and value and embrace. And again, in that national climate that I'm talking about, it's easy to lose a sense of that. Mm-hmm. It's easy if you live in a home with a rear-entry garage to go into that rear-entry garage and never see your neighbor it's easy to sedate yourself in entertainment in the comfort of your own home and never engage others that are in the community. A lot of times we're, we're tempted when we're in, in that type of mentality to see other people as consumers or competitors or demographics. We need to see each other as fellow citizens and fellow neighbors that are made in the image and likeness of God, that are worthy of dignity and value and are imbued with purpose. When we can see each other as that, I feel like there is a, a sense of Usness that uh, allows us to be able to to build a city and a community that is for the flourishing of all. I like that. One of the wisest things I've I've heard over the past few years, you know, with all the political turmoil, um, is that if if the people who are upset about the state of things nationally, you know, would pour that same passion into their communities we would be all so much better and, and might be able to avoid a lot of that turmoil that's that's in a larger sense. Certainly. What's your favorite local coffee shop? Well, I'm currently holding... He's showing me his Palace Club mug, the 2018 version, which I also have and, and I believe is superior to the 2019 version, but don't tell Palace that. I was that. just telling the barista that today. But uh, I love Palace. Um, and I love Evocation. I, I love a lot of the, the, the coffee shops that we have, but I have a special relationship with Palace. Palace was founded in 2011, which is the same year that this church was established. And uh, I was watching a documentary about coral reefs the other day. And, and in some ways, I, I feel like Palace Coffee is the reef, and we're like the coral polyps that, that populate it. Um, Occasionally the, the, attach ourselves to the, it. The, the people of Redeemer. It's, it's very likely that right now um, some Redeemer folks are spread out across the various Palace Coffees right now that are... Um, they're reading the Bible. They're uh, meeting with one another. They're uh, studying the Bible together. And um, I love that we have a place like that where different members of the community can come and interact and meet with one another. And, and so 
we have a great coffee scene here and I'm thankful for all the competition that uh, those coffee shops get into because we are the beneficiaries yeah. um, by receiving the great and wonderful product um, that is uh, the great coffee that we have that I, I know and love Patrick and Crystal and their boys and um, I, I'm grateful to, to be able to support them. I, I can confirm the last couple of times I've seen you in the wild I think it has been at Palace so it's that's exactly right. It's, it's, it's oftentimes that you'll encounter me there. How do you describe Amarillo to people outside the area? Amarillo is an island in the plains. It is this self-contained, unique city that is not codependent on other cities that are around because there aren't a whole lot of big cities that mm-hmm. are around us. And I just think it's absolutely fascinating that some pioneers back in the day came to this place and said, here, we're going to build a city. There's no huge river that's nope. you know, giving us anything. It's, it's just this, this place that's, uh, that's on the plains. And so it's, it's extraordinary to me that you know, we take all of this wind and we use that to be the thing that draws up water from the earth and gives us crops and gives us water for a city. It's an extraordinary place in that regard. And there's a lot of independence that comes with that. There's a lot of resiliency that comes with that. There's a kindness, but a toughness Mm -hmm. simultaneously that comes with that. And I think that can at times lead us to uh, an unhealthy type of independence. We we do have to be independent. We're a part of a greater world. Um, But I I love that it is its own thing. And the thing that I think is so special about Amarillo is that it's a small enough city that one person can make a difference. Hmm. But it's a big enough city that that difference can matter. Yeah. And I love that about Amarillo. That's a great way to look at it. What's the most underrated aspect of life in Amarillo? Amarillo is a radically generous community. Okay. This is a community that there there are people that if there is a cause that they see that is worthwhile, they will give money, they will give time to it, um, they will give their creative creative energy to it. Mm -hmm. There is a lot of creativity here. I think that this is a place with some fantastic musicians and artists and writers and some great people stay here and some great people leave here and go on to different things. But in terms of the generosity, I think that um, there's just so many great families and, and great institutions that are able to be radically generous. My undergraduate and graduate education were funded by essentially two families really? here. Um, uh, the Sylvia B. Harrington Scholarship and the Mary E. Bivens Scholarship um, paid for you know my undergraduate and seminary respectively. Wow. And that's something that's special. And um, I haven't said this, but my undergraduate as well was paid by the Sybil B. Harrington Scholarship. So I, I can join you in, in that gratefulness. We get to have an inheritance mm-hmm. as, as sons of the city to say thank you um, uh, for that and to be able to, um, to bless the city in return. And so I'm, I'm really grateful for that. And, and I think extraordinary things can happen when that generosity can be put together and channeled in the right direction. Um, when people are able to come together and really collaborate, when you get institutions collaborating with one another, mm-hmm. that's when we're able to see some really extraordinary things that happen that are for the common good of our city. And last question. I, I know your focus is, you know, not confined to a particular neighborhood, but what's your favorite neighborhood in Amarillo? That is such a hard question um, because I love a lot of the different neighborhoods in Amarillo. I, I love some of the neighborhoods in uh, Southwest Amarillo, I grew up in the West Haven area. Um, and my family lives in Sleepy Hollow now, and I love walking around the neighborhood and mm-hmm. taking walks and um, being able to see the different trees and walk around the park. Um, but I love the North Heights. I love the barrio. I love Eastridge. And because of that, probably my favorite neighborhood, if I had to pick just one, 
would right now be downtown. Okay. And Which the is kind of the hub that, for all those different ones. Exactly. And and I love you know the vision for Center City is to make downtown a neighborhood for all of Amarillo. Yeah. This is a place that we can share together. And in fact, just recently my my in-laws came in town and they gave my wife and I a few nights where we were able just to have an opportunity um, to spend time with one another. And we could have left the city and gone somewhere else. And we chose to stay in the embassy suites in hmm. downtown Amarillo just to be able to enjoy downtown Amarillo, uh, where we walked to get stuff to eat and to the Sod Poodle Stadium and to go to the new barcade that's on Polk and just to be able to have fun in downtown Amarillo. And there was a period of time in my life where I thought that would never be possible. Right. We're one of the last places in the world you would want to be. After you know, 5 p.m. on a weekday, I mean, <laughs> yeah. it was a ghost town. It was not a place you wanted to walk around in the middle of the night um, um, at all, but, but now it's becoming that. And that makes me happy. I, I think that it's, our downtown is becoming more attractive it's becoming a hub, and I think that good things are going to come from that. Okay, David, that concludes the eight straight questions. I like to close by asking my guests to endorse something related to the area. So what's, what's one thing that you would like listeners to know about or to experience? There are two things that I want to endorse, and this is a hard question too because there are so many great nonprofits mm-hmm. that are based out of this city, that do work in this city, um, so many great people that are doing great things. But I want to mention two things that for me and my family – or something that are a weekly blessing to okay. us. The first is the Turn Center of Amarillo. Okay. Turn Center is an extraordinary place, and it is a profound blessing to the city. I know Bruce Mosley has been on your program before, right. and what they are doing can't be lauded enough. My son Solomon uh, was diagnosed when he was four years old with autism spectrum disorder. Okay. And um, since that time, we have gotten involved with the Turn Center, and we go there pretty much on a weekly basis uh, for him to be able to receive speech therapy and occupational therapy. And it has changed our lives. Hmm. It's been so beneficial to him. And uh, it's something that um, he is is growing as just a, a more functional person that is able to be a gift to this world because he's able to, to break through certain barriers that were hard for him to break through because extraordinary people are giving their time and their passion to be able to serve him and our family and other families that are like us. In fact, one of the things that um, was mentioned on your program previously was that Turn Center just took a part in research for uh, an aquatic therapy that was pioneered here in Amarillo, Texas. Um, Dr. Sloan Rush wrote the grant for it. And this amazing program that's only here in the world, my son was a beneficiary of. Okay. He was one of the... uh, the, the people that was a part of that study. Which now has been like reported internationally. It's, internationally. it's been presented and... Yeah, it's, I mean, it's been presented in Geneva before, you know, an international panel of scientists that are marveling at the work that's being done in Amarillo, Texas. It helped him. It helped him break through a language barrier where he was having a, a trouble breaking through a threshold of his expressive hmm. language. That aquatic therapy helped him. It helped him calm down. And, you know, it, it occurs to me that our family is in the best place that we could possibly be for my son, that we could live in all kinds of different cities in the world. Yeah. But I'm glad that we're right here in Amarillo, Texas, um, because the people at the Turn Center in Amarillo are making a difference. And I know pastors um, get a hard rap for always wanting people to give money, give money to Turn Center. They're in the middle of a building campaign right now um, to expand their their capacity to be able to serve the community. It's something that I can unequivocally say is worth every dime of it. Okay. And it's, it's going to make 
people in our city better members of society. It's going to benefit the city because we're going to be able to see the gifts that are in these amazing people be able to be stewarded um, in a wonderful way. The second thing that I want to endorse with all of my being is the local church of Amarillo. It's a unique, and that's church with a capital C. That's church with church. a capital C. I, of course, love Redeemer, love this place. I love that I get to be a part of it. But I believe in the church, the big church of Amarillo, Texas. Because think about it this way. Where else do you have people from all kinds of different income levels, all different stages of life, all kinds of different industries converging on the same place where they can be challenged in the same way to love God and to love their neighbor and then get to be released into the world to go out and do just that thing. And there are churches that I think definitely could leverage their capacity to serve the church better and to love their neighbors better and to love God better for that matter. But I think it's an extraordinary opportunity to be able to love your city is by loving your church. It's uh, it's something that um, I know a lot of people have been wounded by the church, and I, I think the reason that that's possible is because the church is so powerful. It's so has so much potential to be formative for people's lives that it can actually that power can be wielded in an unhelpful and an unhealthy way. But I believe at its very very best, um, the church can be this extraordinary gift. To a community, and and I know right now, I, I know other churches in the city. I know other pastors in the city. There are people this week that are hungry that will receive food because of a local church. Yeah, there are people this week that are single moms that are struggling that are going to be helped out by families of local churches. Um, we're going to see people this week in this community that are that are refugees that are struggling to try to be able to make their way and navigate the complexity of a strange life in a strange new land that are going to be helped and served because of people in the local church. And that is very much um, worth our while. And, and I, I hope to see more churches be a gift to the city. And I hope to see more people be able to give an opportunity for the church to be that. David Ritchie, thanks so much for being on the podcast. I appreciate it. Thank you, Jason. And that concludes the show. First, I want to say thanks to Panhandle Plains Historical Museum for funding the episode and to Pastor David Ritchie for the interview. You can learn more about him and his church at RedeemerChristianChurch.com. And as usual, Angelina Marie edits every episode of Hey Amarillo, including this one. Finally, thanks to my executive producers, Corey Burns, Jennifer Callahan, Katie Linger, Criselda, Jason Burr, Daniel Davis, Josh Wood, Neil Nossiman, Patrick Burns, Ryan Pennington, Wes Reeves, and Wilson Lemieux. All of those people support the show through Patreon.com slash Hey Amarillo. And if you love the show... You can support it too. Thank you for listening. This has been episode 104. My name is Jason Boyette, and I'll see you next week.